Okay, so if you want to open your Bible to Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 26. Okay. After we had torn ourselves away from them, and the them being the leaders of the church of Ephesus from last week, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was, unload, was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Polymus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law." As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our, sorry, our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself among with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Six to eight, your, now your time to head out for your Bible study. Go and have a great time reading God's Word. And for us, Adam is going to come and speak to us.
Thanks, Bertie. Uh, oh, I just got shocked by that. That's a bit weird. Um, okay, I'm going to be focusing on Acts 21, 1 to 16 today. Uh, and Kezia, can you give us the uh, next slide? All right, who knows what this is? What's that? It hurts. It's turmeric. It's not turmeric. It's turmeric. Oh, dear. Who reckons it's pronounced turmeric? Who reckons it's pronounced turmeric? Oh, thank you, friend. Oh, it burns. It hurts my life. It's got an R in it. Or does it? People have started selling turmeric. It's turmeric. It has an R in it, but it, ha it is so commonly pronounced turmeric that people have started spelling it as such. Friends, have you ever been in a situation where you were right about something, but everyone around you thought you were wrong? <laughs> I'm guessing some of the more strong-willed among us, like me, are thinking, oh my gosh, this is my life all of the time. Uh, and maybe there's a few humble people out there, probably our spouse or our kids sitting next to us, um, who have something different to say. Maybe you can even think of a time, if you're in that humble category, when you believed you were wrong and everyone around you said something different, even though in the end they were wrong, but you felt like, maybe I am wrong. I feel like I'm someone who finds myself a bit of a lone voice uh, some of the time. Maybe it's just a bit of my arrogance coming through. It happened a lot during COVID. Uh, I was one of those slightly weird people who actually read the public health orders. Uh, and so I was often talking with a bunch of people that were convinced that such and such was the rule, and I'd be trying to say something different, uh, to the extent that one occasion I actually telephoned Service New South Wales to tell them that they had an error on their website because the COVID advice on their website didn't match the public health order. Uh, but it turned out there was actually an error in the first page of the public health order, um, which they then corrected for me. So I guess on that occasion, I was wrong, but I was also right because actually they were wrong. So anyway, that time's passed. I just need to get over it. I'll be fine. <sighs> for Paul in our passage today, he finds himself the lone voice in his determination to go to Jerusalem. Throughout this passage, he repeatedly finds himself being told not to go. He shouldn't go, even by those closest to him. Some even speculate on this passage that he was told by the Holy Spirit not to go. Why is Paul so stubborn in this passage in going to Jerusalem? Well, we'll see why as we head through today, and we'll work out, was Paul right or not overall? So, What's happening in this passage? Let's have a bit of a fly-through. We can uh, just blank that out for a moment. Um, okay. Oh, actually, the map, the map might be good. Yeah, let's go to the map. All right, let's have a bit of a fly-through. So we've just uh, seen Paul depart from Miletus. So he was meeting with the Ephesian elders, but he, he called them down there. It's just south of Ephesus. Uh, and so he meets the, the Ephesian elders. So that's who he's tearing away from. Uh, and then we get a bit more of a, uh, a sailing journey. They go to coasts and then to roads, uh, which is not to be confused by the one near Eastwood, not that one. Uh, and then Patara. And then they find a ship that's crossing over to uh, Phoenicia. And so they go on board and set sail. 
They see Cyprus as they go past. That's the big journey across. And so it's probably a larger ship going across the sea rather than hugging the coastline. Um, but that's also why it then takes a little while, once they get to Tyre, to unload the cargo. They're there for about a week. Um, and so because they saved a bit of time, they're able to stay for a week uh, in Tyre, just towards the bottom. Um, and while they're there, they find the disciples who live in Tyre. And uh, these disciples, they asked Paul not to go to Jerusalem, where he was planning to go. Uh, but then when they do leave, all of those disciples, including their wives and children, they all go down to the beach, they pray together, and they say goodbye. Um, and so they go on the ship again, and from there they land at Ptolemais, which is just a little bit to the south. They stay there for a day. The next day they finally reach Caesarea, which is that last stop on the coast. Uh, and then from there they're going to continue the journey by road uh, to Jerusalem. There's a few interesting things that happen at that last stop in Caesarea. Uh, they meet Philip the Evangelist. Uh, and so he's not Philip the Apostle. He's one of the seven who were chosen to wait on tables in Acts 6, but who ended up being a great evangelist as well. Uh, and we find out that he had four daughters who prophesy. And then after that, another prophet comes called Agabus, who we uh, actually met way back in Acts 11. Uh, he comes down from Judea, so probably from Jerusalem or somewhere nearby, uh, and he prophesies about Paul suffering in Jerusalem. But Paul says, don't worry, I'm ready even to die for the name of Jesus. Uh, and so they give up dissuading him, and they say the Lord's will be done. And so they start their way up to Jerusalem uh, with some of the disciples from Caesarea. Up they go uh, to the home of Nason, uh, when they're, where they're going to stay, and they're in Jerusalem. So that's kind of, that's, that's the overview of what's happening here. And so a lot of the commentaries you read on this section, they, they just call it the journey to Jerusalem. Uh, and I think that's a really important part. But there's a few other things I want to point out as we go through this passage. We're going to talk about the journey, uh, but I also want to talk about prophecy. Uh, you'll see this on your little outline that you would have got when you came in. Uh, we'll talk about the journey, we'll talk about prophecy, and I also want to talk about fellowship and affection in Christ. Um, so they're the three things that we're going to talk about today. And so firstly, we'll talk about the journey to Jerusalem. Why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Well, we actually don't see much of the reason given in Acts, which is kind of interesting. Um, but we actually know from Romans 15, 25 to 26, you'll see it on the screen just there, um, that he's bringing an offering from the churches. Uh, so you'll see for Macedonia and Archaea, we're pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. So that's why he's going. Uh, and Luke mentions this a little bit later in Acts 24, 17 as well, uh, which I think is just there as well. My screen keeps disappearing, so I'll look up there. Uh, and um, yeah, so, but while he records this, uh, Luke does, he doesn't actually emphasize this as the main focus in our passage, even though that's why Paul kind of seems to be going there, why it seems important to him. Luke's emphasis is a little bit different in this passage. Uh, in Luke's gospel, so written by the same author, uh, one of the important things is the section of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. So in Luke 9.51, uh, we see that Jesus resolutely set to go for Jerusalem, set out to go to Jerusalem. And so now Luke again, the same guy who's writing Acts, he's a companion of Paul, 
He's deliberate in highlighting some of the parallels between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' journey. Now, Gibson mentioned a little bit about this last week, but we're going to unpack a few of those similarities. Um, The first mention we get of Paul deciding to go to Jerusalem is in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. After this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. Remember, that's where we saw the offering. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. Now, that word decided that you see uh, bolded on the passage um, is actually literally like put on the spirit. And so there's a little bit of debate about whether this means like put on his spirit, like, you know, he just decided in his heart, uh, or whether it means the Holy Spirit kind of told him to go to Jerusalem. Um, Either way, there's a significant conviction and resolve that Paul must go. And you see that conviction in the following sentence as well, uh, where he says, after I have been there, I must visit Rome also. In other words, he must visit Jerusalem, it's necessary, and he must visit Rome afterwards. And that must is a word that Luke uses quite deliberately, both in his gospel and in Acts. Um, The word in in Greek is day, uh, but you don't really need to know that. Um, It it just indicates a kind of divine importance for Luke. It It is necessary, it is divinely necessary. Uh, And so in Luke 9.22, in Luke's gospel, where he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and elders and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised again, or to life, Um, it's the same word, it's that day word. And so it's fair to say, I think, that Luke is trying to draw parallels between Jesus' resolve and intent, divine intent to go to Jerusalem, and Paul's resolve and divine intent to go to Jerusalem. And we see this divine intent again in chapter 20, verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And so here Paul expresses being bound up to the Spirit, being compelled by the Spirit, right? So we get that real divine necessity to go. And we also get a few more parallels with Jesus' account when Agabus the prophet comes on the scene. See, he predicts that Paul will be handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. Have a look at uh, verse 11 of chapter 21. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, this language is very deliberate. It is designed by Agabus, Luke, God, to make us think of those gospel passages. Again, Luke 9.22, notice the language, next slide. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, teachers of the law, the Jews. And then Luke 18.32 He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, insulted. While Paul isn't killed in Jerusalem like Jesus was, and we could certainly take these parallels way too far with some kind of quasi-Jesus, Paul's trying to re-Messiah himself. No, that's not what's happening. But what he is doing is he's taking up his cross and following Jesus. 
Notice the next verse after Luke 9.22, Luke 9.23. Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Just after Jesus' prediction, what does Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. And so, in fact, in, there's all sorts of similarities, which I think are very deliberate. In both Luke's gospel and in Acts, there's even a triple prediction of suffering. Um, I won't read those all out to you. We'll be here forever. Um, but you can have a look at those in your own time if you like. There's these triple predictions of suffering. And then, in the end, there's a resignation of handing the future over, not to my will, but to God's will. You'll see Luke 22:42. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, Jesus says, Yet not my will but yours be done. And then look at what Paul's friends say. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Coincidence? I think not. So what are the implications? Lots of similarities. What are the implications? Well, we need to see that Paul's discipleship involved a conviction to serve Christ and the purposes of the gospel, even in the face of suffering that he took up his cross and followed Jesus. Now, despite his special role as an apostle, I think this account still speaks to us about what cross-shaped discipleship looks like. It's costly, it's driven by gospel purposes, and it's in the footsteps of Christ. Friends, if we want to follow Jesus and receive all the blessings and benefits of salvation and eternal life, we must also be willing to endure the sufferings of this world, the difficulties we might face as Christians for the glory and joy that is on the other side set before us. And so it probably means giving up some level of comfort by making decisions about work or about family or about relationships um, that are hard but good for our godliness or for the gospel. It should mean giving up material things by being generous towards the gospel towards our church, towards mission. It might mean physical suffering or emotional suffering as we speak and affirm the unpopular and offensive message of the gospel. Serving Christ in the face of suffering. So that's the first thing we want to talk about today. The second one thing I want to touch on is prophecy and the spirit. In this passage we get a picture of a time in the church where the Spirit seems to be playing a very active role in speaking prophecy. And if you just read Acts by itself, it's not really surprising that charismatic and Pentecostal churches um, affirm these sorts of spiritual activities in the weekly gatherings and lives of Christian people. For me, having begun my journey as a Christian in a Pentecostal church, I actually think it's a bit of a misunderstanding of what God promises us in Christ. Let me explain. What I think we're seeing here is a particular moment in salvation history, the beginning of the last days. That's the time we live in between revelation of salvation in Jesus and perfection and the new creation, that age that's being ushered in with signs and wonders and supernatural activity. It's in a similar way to the way that Exodus, the first salvation of the people of God, was accompanied by signs and wonders. And I actually think that's particularly evident in this passage here today in the way that the prophecies here are strongly connected to Old Testament prophecies. 
We're going to come back to verse 4 in a moment, which is where we get that mention of the Spirit. Um, But let's go to the first explicit mention of prophecy in verse 8. So in verse 8, they reach Caesarea and they stay at the house of Philip the Evangelist, who had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Wow, goals, Philip. That's pretty good, not bad. I don't know how you kept the boys away from them, but good work, mate. Four daughters who prophesied, unmarried daughters. Now, we don't hear anything else, though, about these daughters from Luke, uh, but we can already draw some brief conclusions um, just by the fact that Luke mentions them. Now, Luke points out that they're unmarried women. He's not defining them by their relationship to a husband, and more than that, they're prophesying. That's the most desirable spiritual gift, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Highlighting this is actually pretty countercultural in that time. It shows us the importance of women in the early church and affirms that sisters amongst us are equal and valued in Christ. But more than that as well, Luke is surely highlighting that this is showing the active fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament book of Joel. Once that comes back, I'll, uh, I'll show you that on the screen. Shall I just read it out? Yep, okay. Uh, You can listen carefully, or you can find it in your Bible, Joel 2.28, or you can find it in Acts 2.17 as well. Peter quotes it. It says, Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Pretty clear, right? Notice not just the emphasis of both men and women, though that is there, both having the spirit poured out, but that's exactly what's happening here. Philip has four daughters who are prophesying. And this prophecy from Joel, as I just mentioned, was quoted in Acts 2.17 when Peter at Pentecost is preaching and the disciples first received the Holy Spirit, this same passage. See, Luke is highlighting that these daughters are evidence of the new age, that last days, this new ushering in of this period in time, a fulfillment of God's promise in Joel. And then Agabus appears uh, in verse 10, and he's specifically identified as a prophet, We've seen him previously in Acts 11.28, and he seems there in Acts 11 to be a pretty legit prophet. He prophesies about a famine, and Luke says it takes place. Uh, So he seems legit. And he comes up to Paul, and he acts out these prophetic words he speaks. He binds himself up with Paul's belt. There's a few important things to notice. This is the only time when you'll see that phrase highlighted there, This is what the Holy Spirit says, or more traditionally, thus says the Holy Spirit. It's the only time when it's used in the whole Bible. But this phrase, thus says, it's used in Revelation as well, but it's used heaps in the Old Testament prophets, introducing what God is saying through the prophet. In fact, thus says the Lord appears almost a thousand times in the Old Testament most of which in the prophetic books. But not only that, we see in Agabus' actions, acting out this uh, prophecy symbolically 
by actually tying himself up. That's really common in the Old Testament prophets as well. Ahijah in 1 Kings tears his cloak apart. Ezekiel, you might remember him lying down and doing all sorts of uh, uh, full-on things. Isaiah does it. Jeremiah, Hosea in a really confronting way with his family. Again, in this passage, we see these really kind of rich harking back to Old Testament prophecy as a way of ushering in this new age. And we get this sense that Agabus is legit. He's, he's actually speaking the words of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Holy Spirit. And so we see that God's divine purposes for Paul are, in fact, orchestrating that he will suffer if he goes to Jerusalem. But we start to come up against a few issues with these prophecies. The first one is, are there contradictory messages from the Spirit? Or, in fact, is Paul disobeying the Spirit in going to Jerusalem? This is one of the questions that gets asked about this passage. See, the issue begins in verse 4. I skipped over it before, um, but just find it in your Bible. Uh, it seems like the disciples in Tyre urge Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Wait a second. Didn't the Spirit compel Paul to go in chapter 20? We saw that earlier. What's the answer? Well, I suspect for me the simple answer is that the disciples in Tyre, maybe they had some awareness through revelation from the Spirit that Paul would suffer, but because of that, by their own volition, because of their, well, in fact, Spirit-filled love and concern for Paul, they urge him not to go. It was in the Spirit but it wasn't the Spirit urging Paul not to go. It was the disciples urging Paul not to go because of the Spirit. So I think that kind of helps us with that. But the second question comes from Agabus' prophecy. His words are so reminiscent of Jesus' words. But the problem is, Paul wasn't exactly bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. He was, he was actually kind of rescued from the Jews by the Gentiles and bound by them. Have a look on the screen. While they, the Jews, were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, the Jews, they stopped beating Paul. And so the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he'd done. And it goes on to say, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, yeah, anyway, that's fine. Uh-oh. We got a bit of a problem. You got Aga busted. Next slide, please. Come on. Come on, Kezia, get on it. All right. Or did he? See, Luke's writing this just a couple of chapters later, right? He doesn't seem to have any issues affirming that Agabus is a real prophet in Acts. And then Paul himself, in Acts 28.17, says this. Next slide. Thanks. My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, recounting what's happening, he said, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. So... It's possible, I think, and Paul seems to do this, 
to interpret the words that Agabus speaks about the Jews as causative, right? If the Jews hadn't tried to oppose Paul, in fact, later it says the Jews objected, and so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. If the Jews hadn't tried to oppose Paul and beat him up, he wouldn't have been bound and handed over to the Gentiles. So I think we can kind of go, that's all right. Paul seems to think it's legit. Luke seems to think it's legit. I think seem to think it's legit. So, here we go. What are the implications of this part? Prophecy. Well, predictive prophecy and special revelation from the Spirit, it was clearly a feature of the early church. But it may be less common now because we're not at the dawn of a new age. See, the Bible is also complete. The canon, the scriptures, we have them complete now. They didn't then. And so we have all the revelation from God we need for life and godliness. So what about prophecy now? Well, prophecy now often looks more like bringing God's given word to bear on our context and on the people with us. It's speaking the word into a situation, but we get it from the scriptures. The second thing to notice is that both men and women are to prophesy. My dear sisters, you have such an important part to play in God's plan as well as my brothers. We must each know our Bibles really well so that we can indeed, by the Spirit's leading, bring that word to bear in situations that we encounter and with people we encounter or find ourselves alongside. And even the least of us, sons, daughters, even the servants, as we saw in Joel, all of us in Christ have the Spirit. God's Spirit has been poured out on us. We can all bring the word to bear on each other. And finally, we see from these prophecies that the work of the Spirit is powerful. Sorry, from these prophecies and from the work of the Spirit, that God is powerfully in control of these events and his divine purposes are playing out. And so I think the brief implication from that is that we need not fear any situation, but we can courageously entrust ourselves to his purpose. Okay, that's prophecy. The final part in our three-part mini-sermons is to talk about affection and fellowship from this passage. Um, Let's do it. We saw the affection between Paul and the Ephesian elders in the previous passage, didn't we? They're weeping on the beach. Um, And this is the them in verse 1. There's this real sense uh, in verse 1 of not wanting to part from them, being dragged away by this need to set sail. But... Interestingly, the disciples at Tyre in verse 4 are much less well-known to Paul. He likely knows of them from having traveled through Phoenicia in Acts 15.3. But there's certainly not the kind of relationship that he had with the Ephesian elders. He spent around three years in Ephesus. Yet, in Tyre, Paul seeks them out and he spends a whole week with them by the end of which we see a repeat scene of the previous chapter. The Tyrians are so affectionate towards Paul that they urge him not to go to Jerusalem. And they, including their whole families, come out of the city with Paul and they kneel on the beach again and they pray together. There is this deep spiritual bond between Christians 
that is, it is unique. And so we see this affection again in verse 12 after Agabus' prophecy um, when we, Paul's companions, uh, I think you'll see it, uh, oh, no, not yet, that's right. When we, Paul's companions, and the people in Caesarea as well, um, plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem to suffer. And so Paul answers in verse 13, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is shattered. They cry, they beg him not to go because there's this, this affection and deep fellowship that they have. Their love for Paul is such that they want to protect him from harm. And so they, they repeatedly try to dissuade Paul from his divinely commissioned purpose. Now, this is really hard, isn't it? Seeing someone you love in great danger of suffering for the gospel, a natural reaction is we want to stop it from happening, don't we? But sometimes, sometimes, this can be contrary to God's good purposes for the gospel. See, Paul says he is ready to be bound, and if necessary, follow in the very footsteps of Jesus and die in Jerusalem. Now, in the end, he won't die, but the Holy Spirit has told him earlier on the next slide, in chapter 20, verse 23, he says, I only know that in every city, prison and hardships are facing him. And then after Agabus' prophecy, it is so clear that though he is compelled by the Spirit to go, that Paul knows he will have to suffer for Christ's purposes. So what is the right response from those who love him? What's the right response from us when those we love may encounter suffering for the gospel? I think we see it in verse 14, in the parallel with what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord's will be done. This is the right response. Certainly, we ought to pray for those who suffer. Jesus himself prays, if possible, take this away. But more than that, not our will be done, but God's. This is hard. So what are the implications from this final bit? Well, we need to have a deep care for brothers and sisters. The affection and emotion that we see in this passage and the previous sections with the Ephesians is pretty intense. To some of us, it might feel a bit more like a teen drama than proper Christian relationships. But I think we can open ourselves up to a bit more vulnerability and affection than we're used to in our fellowship. We don't want to be ruled by our emotions, sure, but they have a valuable place in strengthening our fellowship with each other and the bond that we have as the body of Christ. Let's have each other in our homes and in the mess of our lives. Let's be a bit more vulnerable as we share what's really going on for us and be able to bear one another's burdens. And let's be willing to actually express affection and care for each other and for it to not be too weird. But with all that said, let's not hinder God's purposes. 
we ought to be careful that our love for someone does not cause us to dissuade them from honoring God. And so I think this can be particularly hard for those of us who have kids. It seems unbearable to be okay with our kids making a decision that might cause them to suffer, even if it's for godly reasons. As our kids grow up and they begin to stand up for Jesus in a world opposed to him, they will most likely be thought of as badly for being a Christian. As they make decisions about study or work that we might feel isn't going to produce the best material outcomes, but might give them more opportunity to grow in Christ, I dropped subjects at uni so I could go to campus Bible study, what is our reaction going to be? If they want to be a missionary in a dangerous location, what will our counsel to them be? It doesn't just apply to kids, friends, family, those of us we love. Will we dissuade people? Or will we say, not my will, but the Lord's will be done? Friends, will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we do indeed pray that not our will, but your will be done. Father, we've seen today that though Paul encountered so many people dissuading him from uh, going to Jerusalem, that he was compelled by your spirit and by uh, knowing you to serve you wholeheartedly, even if it meant suffering and even if it meant death. Father, help us to be willing to suffer for the gospel, seeing that, the, that eternal life is set before us and that this world is only temporary. Heavenly Father, we pray as well uh, that as we um, read your word and as we hear you speak, that that word would bear on us, that it would cause gospel-shaped decisions in us and that we might even bring it to bear on others as well so that we might together grow in fellowship and affection as we share in your gospel purposes. And Father, help us with those we love to pray for their good, but ultimately to see the good of your plans and purposes in Christ and to pray your will be done. Amen.